0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Miles Davis Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Ah, the Olympics. Back in 2012, the Summer Olympics were awesome at least for Americans, the U.S. won 46 gold medals, far more than any other country. We won 29 silver medals more than any other country. In all, we won 104 medals, leaving us easily and immovably in the spot we've come to expect. Number one. But there's another Olympian competition you might not have heard of. It's called the Program for International Student Assessment. Pisa. It's a test that's an Olympics of brain power, And here our performance is dismal. We rank somewhere around where Belarus and Azerbaijan fare on the playing field. On this test and many other measures of smartness compared with other countries, the USA isn't also ran. So what's going on? Have we become the dumb jocks of the global economy? And what can we do about it? These are some of the questions journalist Amanda Ripley tackles in her new book, The Smartest Kids in the World, and how they got that way. She takes us to Finland, Poland, and South Korea to find out what those countries are doing right and wrong and what we can learn from them. Amanda Ripley is an investigative journalist and author. She's a former staffer at Time, Washington City Paper, and Congressional Quarterly. Now you can read her work in The Atlantic and lots of other magazines. She's with us in the studio to talk about... The smartest kids in the world. Amanda Ripley, welcome to Office Hours.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, uh, I love the book. I'm eager to talk about it. I think we're going to have some great conversation for listeners. But let me explain to you and our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open things up so that listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted. As we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. But as always, I get to go first, so let me begin. So Amanda, the book is... The Smartest Kids in the World, a great title, a really, really great read, too, a really, really interesting read. You took on a big task. You wanted to understand how the education systems of different countries worked, why these countries were doing so much better. But you you went about your investigation in a really ingenious way. Tell us what you did.
1: Well, I wanted to know what it was like to be a kid in these countries, the, the ones we always hear about on the news, Finland and South Korea, where uh, allegedly everything is so perfect and everyone's so smart. But I knew that in order to know what it would be like to be a kid there, I needed kids, right? I mean, I'm just too old to see high school the way a 17-year-old will see it. So luckily there are 30,000 teenagers who essentially change place every year, mm-hmm. who come to the United States and live with a family and go to public school on exchange programs or who leave the United States. And so I followed three American teenagers, For one school year, who were going to countries with very compelling education stories.
0: And those countries were?
1: Finland, South Korea, and Poland. Now,
0: how'd you pick those particular countries?
1: Good question. Yeah, it was a a long process spending a lot of time alone with a lot of data and research and talking Mm. to experts and trying to look at different metrics to figure out what, you know, what really, which countries are really getting this done for all kids. And by getting it done, I mean. Which countries are teaching kids to think, mm. to think for themselves, to solve problems they haven't seen before, to make an argument? Because those are the kinds of skills that we know are really, really valuable and difficult to teach, uh, but more valuable every day in the modern economy.
0: And so um, and so, what you, I think what you achieved here, and, I, and I admire, as a writer, I admire it, is, it is, is a couple of different things in this way of approaching the book. Number one is you have stories uh, that you can tell of this girl. I, one, I, think, I mean, I love all three country stories, but of this girl who goes from... I mean I hate to say it, some backwater in Oklahoma to the I think the western coast of backwater Finland. Backwater of Finland, right, <laughs> exactly. It's ironic. Uh, and sort of what her story is like. But they also serve as so you tell their stories, but they serve in some ways as your correspondence. They serve as your 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 feet on the ground there. So let's talk about that young woman from from Oklahoma. She didn't like her school all that much back in Oklahoma. No. Um and so she decides to go to Finland, having never been out of the country before, her mom, who's a school teacher, has never been out of the country before. Tell us what her experience was like, this young woman.
1: So she she reads about Finland online, and she reads that they have the smartest kids in the world, and she says, that's where I want to go. So she raises the ten thousand dollars all by herself to go, and to her mom 's amazement manages to get this done to her own amazement, so she ends and up there 's
0: a photograph in the book of one of the ways that she raised the money
1: yeah, the bake sale that she held outside the supermarket in her town which she realized was actually a not a very uh, lucrative way to raise <laughs> money as she found other better ways like selling beef jerky door to door turns out to be a big money maker i 'm uh, not sure
0: I would try that here in northwest <laughs> d c but yeah, maybe you got to think Oklahoma. about your market yeah.
1: right uh, maybe turkey jerky i don 't know but um, Anyway, so she ends up in, in rural Finland, uh, also living with a single mother in, in a town called Pietasari. And um, the first day that she's there, she uh, gets a little tour of the town from another student. And they walk up to her high school that she's going to be attending for the year. And the Finnish girl says, look at this. Kind of looks like something out of the Holocaust, huh? <laughs> and Kim says, What? Oh, my God, because it didn't look like she imagined Finnish high schools to look like. Um, and she wasn't sure what to say. You know, she wanted to be polite. But it was a sort of dreary gray sure. building with a big clock that had clearly broken years before. So it, it wasn't this kind of, you know, perfect IKEA building that she had imagined.
0: Um, and that's that ends up being true for a lot of the places that your correspondents visit yeah. that the the physical settings <laughs> are hardly gleaming. I mean, do you, draw, right. do you draw any lessons from that? That the, the smartest kids in the world are looking, are working at places that are the kind of the dreariest places in the world?
1: <laughs> well, I think certainly it might say more about us than mm. uh, than it does about them. But, and there are exceptions. I mean, there are gleaming, glorious schools in Finland and Korea that that particularly journalists get taken to when they go there sure. on official junkets. <laughs> but... Right. Uh, but I do think Americans, particularly upper income americans but but you know in general are are very um, attuned to uh, to facilities mm-hmm. and to gear and mm-hmm. to uh, tech uh, education technology in the classroom and the kinds of things that look nice to parents but may or may not yield returns in learning
0: right and you actually later in the book there 's some really good guidance I think for parents about what to look for, what kind of questions to ask when you're finding a school for your kid. And and one of your lessons is to beware of the shiny objects.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and that's, you know, you can kind of imagine why that's the case in the United States. I mean, this is a pretty, you know, this is a culture where consumption is a big part of of our life for better and for worse. And um, so we are, (laughs) we sometimes can be vulnerable to, you know, tech companies coming in and selling us iPads for everyone.
0: Right what um what was do you think was the biggest surprise for this young woman coming into uh, Finland going from it's I just think of it's such an incredible culture change um, from this kind of sports obsessed high school in Oklahoma where the math teacher is really a football coach who majored in physical education. Uh, coming to this place where teachers actually have a very different status and a very different background. But tell me, what for her as a kid, as a 17-year-old, what was her biggest surprise, do you think?
1: Kim is an incredibly brave young American woman yeah. and, and somebody that really you know made the work very easy, as you can tell from the book, that uh, without her, I would have been lost. So she, she goes there. You know, She doesn't really speak any Finnish. It's very challenging in many ways. There are a couple things that struck her right away. One was the amount of trust that people mm. seem to have in her and her fellow students, So she was allowed to leave when she had free periods and she had a lot more sort of just time that she was expected to manage on her own, more like college. And Mm -hmm. she also, there was no police officer. They gave kids knives in the cafeteria and things Mm -hmm. like that. The (laughs) kids really noticed that kind of thing, you Uh know. Uh, But she also noticed something else, which was more subtle and, and took a little longer to notice, but she found it even more profound, which is that all the kids in her school on some baseline level seemed to buy-in to Hmm. the premise of Mm -hmm. school so even the kid she was pretty sure was coming to school stoned every day Right, did his homework and you know would participate. <laughs> so that
0: was a very interesting part where she identifies this as one kid as a stoner, which she had in her school in Oklahoma. Yeah, but this kid, um, tell us about this kid. What did this kid? What did this kid do that the stoners in Oklahoma didn't do?
1: <laughs> well, he would. He was similar in a lot of ways. I mean, this is something all the kids I followed said. You know that the kids were in general very, very similar. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they spent a lot of time on Facebook. They played video games. Every country I went except to, except in Korea.
0: Get that one <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: <laughs> Every country I went to, there was some kid in the back of the room texting, you know, against against all rules. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of similarities. They have teachers they like, teachers they hate. The stoner kids in Finland would be smoking outside and come in kind of glassy-eyed to first period. And, you know, it was very similar. But, but he seemed to be um, still, uh, at least from what Kim could tell, buying in to the idea that what he was doing there in school would would impact his life. It would it would affect how interesting his life would be. And she became very fascinated by this, mm-hmm. not just with this the Stoner kids, but with all the kids, and was trying to understand why it is they seem to care more about school. Even if they complained about it, which they did, they seemed to care about it, and they seemed to be connecting the dots between what they were doing all day and how interesting their lives would be, more so than even the kids in her honors classes back in Oklahoma.
0: Interesting, interesting. I think those are two really important insights. One is the caring. The other one is actually connecting the dots and figuring out the why of the why of all of it. Let's go back to this this um, this this test that is at sort of catalyst for a lot of the book. And you talk about the guy who essentially fashioned the test and why it's different from other um, kinds of standardized tests. Um, It's called the PISA. Tell us what the PISA is, what it measures, why it matters.
1: Yeah, so the PISA, there's a couple different international tests you hear about. The PISA is one of the newer ones. It started in 2000, and it's a test that's given to half a million 15-year-olds every three years in 70 countries. And what's different and interesting about the PISA is that it actually was designed from the beginning not to test what information and knowledge you've absorbed and memorized and can regurgitate, but how you can apply knowledge to solve problems you've never seen before in math, reading, and science. So when I heard this, and there's a lot of hype about this, I was skeptical of it. I thought, mm-hmm. how can the test possibly measure critical thinking? Mm-hmm. So I took the test. I took the PISA test. Right. And I have to say, I was, I was impressed. I felt like I was I did have to think. <laughs> like, I, it was a strange feeling to Give have a standardized test. Yeah.
0: Give me an example of a question that would be on the PISA that you might not see on either right. the, the, the kind of um, statewide tests that American kids are taking or even something like the SAT or ACT.
1: Right. Here's an example. Um, you know, in a, a standard test that we all remember taking in school, it might say, well, if Jimmy has, you know, five coins of this currency and, you know, needs to buy ice cream, what you know, one of those. The PISA asks you, to design your own currency, mm-hmm. like right there in the test book. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. draw it. <laughs> and uh, Or another example, very practical, but this is the kind of things that you and I have to deal with in our real life, is you know they have a flyer that they've printed up in the test booklet. And it's from, um, it's, it's a company flyer that's posted on the wall of the, of the kitchen and it's trying to convince employees to get the flu shot. And it asks you to critique the flyer. Like, is it compelling? You know, how could it be better? And you have to write in long form what you think. And, you, you know, there's, there's no right answer, but you get more and more points depending on the complexity and cogency of your argument. So that's the kind of thing that people actually have to do in in real life these days. And uh, so it was, it was pretty compelling. It's not perfect, right? No, No test is perfect. But... You know, that combined with other things that are easier to measure, like high school graduation rates, Mm -hmm. college attainment rates, Mm -hmm. other indicators, economic indicators, those kinds of things together helped me decide that Finland was clearly a place I had to visit. This is a place that is consistently performing at the top of the world on the Pisa test in particular, but also on other measures
0: and where does the u s rank on these kinds of tests? okay give us a sense of our, our yeah you we're know, not we're not we're not even competing for a bronze here
1: well, you know what we are particularly in reading it, and it 's easy okay. to exaggerate our <laughs> Failing, So I'll try not to do that. Yeah. But um, we're, we're doing okay. We're doing about 12th in the world in reading on mm-hmm. average. Um, we still have too big of a difference between our high-income kids Absolutely. and our low-income. And other countries have low-income kids, believe it or not, but, <laughs> but they don't have such a big gap necessarily. Canada would be a good example of and that.
0: And we talked about on our last episode with Diane Ravitch that our low-income kids actually do better than a lot of low-income kids in other places in the world.
1: In some places, yeah. yes, that's true. But not in not in the top twenty countries mm, in the world. Okay. So okay. And then in but our biggest weaknesses are in math and science. And math in science we're about seventeenth in the world and math more like twenty-sixth. And what's interesting about that is you can even see it at every socioeconomic level. So even our mm. top quartile of richest, most privileged kids, who by the way are richer than rich kids around the world. Those kids are performing eighteenth in the world in math on the PISA but number 1 in the world for the percentage who report getting high grades in math. So there is this interesting disconnect between <laughs> how we tell kids they're doing yeah. and how they're actually doing compared to international standards.
0: Yeah, well that raises I mean that raises some two really really interesting issues I want to get to, but I want to remind listeners we're talking to Amanda Ripley. She's the author of a great book called The Smartest Kids in the World, a book uh, if you've got, if you've got kids, if you're a parent uh, if you're interested in the future of education, this is, I think, a really essential read. Let's, let's, let me pick up on that, Amanda, here for a moment. Um, I thought there was one thing really interesting. I mean, there's so many interesting things here. But you also said um, there's a difference between reading and math. Um, in the way that we think about it. That is, Americans do reasonably well, as you say, on reading, but we don't do all that well on math. And there's some scenes in the book where a kid is asked to do a a problem in front of the whole class, and these American kids come in saying, I'm not good at math, Mm -hmm. and they kind of freak out, they freeze. And I think that some of us at least either have had that experience or know that experience. And you say something um, really, really interesting here, and I want you to comment. I'm going to read you your own words, so with me here. You say, um, if you weren't good at reading, you could, most people assumed, get better through hard work and good teaching. But in the United States, math was, for some reason, considered more of an innate ability, like being double-jointed. <laughs> so... Tell us about that. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting really interesting insight. You have, you, I've never heard a kid say, I'm just not good at reading. Maybe right. some kids who maybe have dyslexia or something right. like that, where there's actually you know, sort of the 1% of kids with actual cognitive impairment that makes it difficult to do that. But beyond that... You don't say, oh, I'm just not good at reading. Right. So I, what's what's going on here and yeah, what can we do about it? Right.
1: I wonder if there was a time in which kids did say that. Huh. You know? I don't good know. Question. I yeah. don't know. But if we could go back a hundred years, yeah. I wonder if kids would be like, ah, I'm not good at reading. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but what's underlying that is it's optional. You know what I mean? Because
0: what's optional? I don't Math. Okay.
1: So if people said that about reading, there was a time when reading was not considered, you know okay. absolutely you essential. Sorry. Yeah. I was a little disjointed. Yeah. But But, you know, there was a time when that wasn't absolutely essential to survival, right, reading. And so people might have been like, well, I'm just not good at it and moved on, right? Mm. Just like I might not be good at mechanical engineering, I don't Mm -hmm. need to. And Mm -hmm. so with math, I think there's an assumption, too, that is outdated at this point, which is that I don't need to be good at it. It's, it's, you know, an extracurricular in some ways. And so you see this actually with teachers as well, that our middle school math teachers-to-be are... Uh, underskilled in math mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. in large tests of their math uh, skills this is this is not their fault this is so it 's a cycle that kind of continues right where parents also in some surveys say that reading is more important than math so i think it's i think it's shifting i hope i'm hopeful of that math unf- you know <laughs> like it or not, math is now a very strong predictor of future income it is I a, found that
0: surprising too yeah yeah the data on that are pretty powerful. it's pretty
1: compelling and and it is i, I guess you know, I struggled with why that is, and, and looked hard at some of that research, and it seems like you know sometimes it is true that for most jobs you do need a basic level of numeracy. you know even for our jobs, you need to be able to figure out you know odds and percentages and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. but um But also, you know, math is a language of logic. It is, it is a way to learn discipline and reason and problem solving and probability. And those things are very valuable and getting more so every day in a, in a modern economy.
0: I'll give you another theory to explain that and goes really to the heart. And I want you to talk about this, too, which is that it could be that the people who have mastered that, that uh, being good at math is actually a proxy for other sorts of things. Hmm. Conscientiousness. Interesting. Hard work. And yeah. what we might be, and so it might be a little bit of a head fake there. That That's what we're re- what we're really seeing is the predictive power of the character traits that you write about: yeah. conscientiousness, diligence, effort, persistence. And what we have is a correlation with the correlation is with math, but it's not causal. And the causal part are the character things. And this and that. And yeah. the point about character, we talked about this on another Office Hours episode with with Paul Tough. And there, there's a lot that you write about, um, um, about in the broad heading of, of character, but one of the themes that comes out in your book as we go, as, as you take your, as these students go to other countries in Scandinavia, you know, in, Scandinavia in Eastern Europe, in, in, in Asia, and I want to get to Korea because Korea is totally fascinating here, um, is that a sense that I got, that we in the United States might overplay the importance of innate talent and underplay the importance of, of, of hard work. Do you think that's something that's going on here?
1: I do, and it's ironic, isn't it? Because this is a country that's built on the idea of, of meritocracy, of working hard, and everybody, you know, has a shot. And so, yeah, I don't think we're all, the only ones who do this. <laughs> you know, I don't think we're right. alone. But it is that is something we could learn from from other countries. And I think some people are learning that. You know, and Paul Tuff's book is a great example, mm-hmm. of, and Carol Dweck's work on the growth oh, sure. mindset. And so, you know, it is trickling out there. But it is, it takes it takes a long time. Yeah.
0: Right. And, and it, but it would seem like if we that, that I mean, you have another great line in here where you because we, we, we you say policies mostly worked in the margins. The fundamental difference, meaning one of the, di- the differences between, say, how the U.S. performs and, and how Korea performs. The fundamental difference was a psychological one. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that?
1: This idea that if you fail at something, you mm-hmm. just means you need to work harder and get more help that's what that means it's exactly the same as many of Americans look at sports it's exactly the same so if we could just shift 10% yeah. of that mindset towards academics you know, you watch parents on a soccer field, even with little kids or a basketball court, they're pretty tough on those kids. You know, mm-hmm. they they don't, you know, even though there's trophies for everyone and yeah. all that kind of crap, they, they are pretty straight with kids about, okay, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to get back out there, you know, and they get benched if they screw up and there, you know, there are consequences and there is kind of a clear hard line about, about winning and losing and kids, you know, my son is in a league where they're not supposed to keep score, which is ridiculous because mm-hmm. all the kids do keep score, yeah, right? Yeah. So they know. They know when something is for real and when, when it's serious and when it's not. And so I think that mindset that if you fail, which you have to in order to learn, there is no other way. You have to fail all the time and make mistakes all the time. And if that happens, it just it's fine. It's it's great. It just means you need to work harder and get more help.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I hope that your book can be just, you know, perhaps the final nail in the coffin of the whole self-esteem movement. This idea that we we we, we, we work on kids' esteem. Um as an end in itself, rather than self-esteem coming from actual effort and accomplishment. But you also come up with, and, and this is interesting because if you go to the psychological literature, this is one of the things that's one of the big five character uh, personality traits, which is conscientiousness. Mm. Um, United States does not do very well in the conscientiousness Olympics, does it?
1: It does better than some countries, <laughs> but worse than <laughs> others. So, uh
0: Oh, I—I I, my heart was broken as an American where we ranked on conscientiousness.
1: <laughs> well, you know, there's not been
0: down there in the 30s.
1: Yeah, right. But out of 70, <laughs> to be fair. Uh, well,
0: yeah, yeah. No, now, you know, now you're now you're trying to boost American not, self-esteem in the absence Italy. of real achievement, right? <laughs>
1: we're not Greece, not right. yet. Uh, so. Yeah, there was. There hasn't been enough. It's very hard to compare conscientiousness across cultures because mm-hmm. people have different definitions. You can't just ask people, you know, do you no, work hard? No, but there's a
0: methodology but that you're right there about. there was
1: one study, very clever, where they looked at um, kids taking the same PISA test we've been talking about. And at the end, there's a demographic survey. It doesn't count, right? It's, it's standard for many tests where it says like, how many books do you have at home? And what do your parents do? And those kinds of things. And surprisingly, most kids do actually a decent job of trying to finish the survey, even though it doesn't, none of it counts for anything. But the these researchers found that the there was a big predictive power. If you totally finished the survey, you did the country did better in math on the Pisa. So there was this strange um, link between finishing the survey, like finishing what you start, and doing well in math.
0: And conscien- there's other evidence out there that conscientiousness is a very good predict on an individual level of who's going to do well, who's going to contribute, who's going to have a healthy, satisfying life, and and who isn't. And we're really stink at conscientiousness.
1: It's tricky, right? Because some of that is just conformity and compliance. Like, where is the line between it? Like, there are countries where kids are, like, just trained mm-hmm. and forced sometimes out of fear to mm-hmm. finish do everything follow all the rules and we know we don't want to be like that mm-hmm. right so at the same time <laughs> you know it is you're right i mean the older i get i feel like conscientiousness is key to almost everything i mean as you know you cannot finish a book unless you are almost insanely conscientious because you want to stop like a million times and so these kinds of things these these great But but difficult challenges of life require follow through.
0: Right, Um, but they also require. I mean, again, you know, it's it's not as dour as that because another thing that seems to come through here, particularly when you get to a place like Finland and even in Poland, is some amount of autonomy and trust being part of this as well. So it isn't. So talk to us about autonomy because that seems to connect, uh, at least for the experience of the Finnish kids and also of the Polish teachers.
1: Yeah. Well, I surveyed hundreds of exchange students as well, just to see if there were any patterns in what they were telling me in addition to what the research said and what these three kids that I followed closely said. And one of the things they said, six out of 10 said that they felt like they had more autonomy uh, back home than they did in the United States. Mm -hmm. Many of them anecdotally complained about Uh, all the rules they were subject to in the school. So they liked just to be clear, they liked their classrooms in America. They liked that they were allowed to to debate things, Mm -hmm. that it was more interactive. The teachers seemed to care vaguely about them in a way that they didn't in Germany or Italy. But they found the school itself just ridiculously oppressive in in terms of rules. And these kids are not going to the worst schools or the best schools in the country. Typically. all passes. Yeah. Having to get a pass to go to the bathroom when you're 17 is kind of, you know, insulting. And teenagers... Like everyone, as I don't need to tell you, are motivated by autonomy. I mean, that's one of the things, like having control, right, over your destiny. It's
0: not only, in, but also teachers as well. And I thought that the, right. the, um, the, the Polish system, which was sort of a surprise, I didn't expect to see Poland in this book. Yeah. Um, they, they had this uh, one gentleman, I, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, who came in as like the, the big reformer. Honk, yeah. And um, and he basically had a way of squaring, I guess, rigor and results with a sense of autonomy, which is saying, here's here's what we want to achieve. Now you use your best means to go do it.
1: Poland is a very interesting case because they have not yet achieved the levels of Finland or South Korea or these education superpowers, but they've radically improved over the past 10 years. In different levels, they have a higher high school graduation rate than we do, and their PISA results are quite strong and have gone up quite a bit. They spend also 50% of what we spend per student. So that's why I chose Poland. They have a 15% child poverty yeah, rate, pop- which is comparable right. to ours. So, And yes, they did a number of reforms. It's hard to disaggregate which is causing what, but it did seem like um, one of the things that helped them was to delay when they separated kids into different tracks, academic and vocational, but also to give these new schools that had to be created to absorb that population more autonomy and give teachers a little more autonomy. and. You know They're still working on that, but it does seem like even if you look at high-performing American schools, it is that mixed, that sort of earned autonomy does go along. Earned
0: autonomy, that's an interesting way to put it, yeah. Uh, You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with Amanda Ripley. She's the author of a great new book called The Smartest Kids in the World. Some of the smartest kids in the world live in Korea, South Korea. We're talking about South Korea here. And um, these kids do really well. On these tests. This is a culture, a, a country that takes education really, really, really seriously. And yet, it seems like a pretty miserable place to go to school. And that was sort of the experience of Eric, this kid from Minnesota who was an exchange student there. He really didn't like it. And even you call it. A, these are your lovely words here. A, I mean, nice phrase, a nice phrase—a culture of education masochism—that <laughs> um, I think is. Um, so I was sort of—I was of such a mixed mind about Korea mm-hmm. because you respect the 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 rigor, the 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 primacy of education, and yet it seemed like everybody was miserable. So, right. Tell us about Korea and how does, and, and unravel if you can that paradox.
1: Eric gets to Korea and on his first day of school, he's in class and he looks back behind him and he just glances back and then he has to do a double take because he realizes half the class, a third to half the class is asleep. Like not dozing off, but flat out, head on the desk, sleeping. And, uh,
0: and in fact, some entrepreneurs have spotted this as a business opportunity for sleeping kids. Yes. Tell us about that. Right.
1: Now, Eric took me shopping in, uh, in Korea and we, we looked at some pillows that slip over your arm. They actually have like a wrist uh, slot so that you can more comfortably sleep. It's sort of premeditated sleep that's <laughs> happening. Um, so he was shocked because he thought that was incredibly rude. And you know, Korea is a place where manners do matter quite a mm-hmm. bit. But, uh, you know, the reality is more complicated. Why were these kids asleep? Well, he finally figures out that they were asleep because they're up all night studying. And it, <laughs> that is a backwards logic if there ever was one, that they're sleeping through school because they're studying too late.
0: And they're not only studying for school, they're going to extra school. Tell right. us about it for, the, have, for Americans who don't understand this, this the culture of the hog ones.
1: Right. So much of the world has something called a shadow education system. Mm-hmm. Thank God this has not taken hold to this anywhere near this degree in the United States. But it means that kids go to school all day in the public normal system. and then after school, they go to after school tutoring academies, which are just like school. They're usually in kind of lousier buildings, but they, uh, they have classes that r- repeat all the things you learned in school, except your parents are paying for them. And they're much more responsive to families because it is more of a free market. So it, is, it has its pros and cons, but, uh, but it's really inefficient, right, to, have, to be repeating everything twice every day in this sort of arms race to get more and more education
0: uh and you and you write that Koreans these are these cram schools these hagwons um you wrote Korean parents spend almost 18 billion that's billion with a b listeners billion on cram schools which is more than the US federal government spent fighting the drug war in the US um so tell us. so so um and yet there's there's i don't know I, I i detected a little the kids seem to like the hagwons better than their than regular schools and there's this great character um great In terms of interest, I'm not sure how positive it is as a phenomenon, but a a fellow named Andrew Kim. Um, Andrew Kim is a rock star, but not a rock star rock star. He's a rock star teacher. How did that happen?
1: Right. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, so... Andrew Kim teaches English in the Hagwon after school academies and he became known to be very effective and the way kids sign up for after school classes is by the teacher so it's really down to the variable that matters most and so they don't just sign up for the school they sign up
0: mm-hmm. for the teacher
1: mm-hmm. and they pay the families are very focused on outcomes so they look very closely at test results they're all like on posters outside the school like what you know where their kids got into college and what their test scores are and And so through that, he eventually sort of built this empire and now brings in about $4 million a year. He has 30 employees. He writes books. You know, he's like his own brand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, there's pros and cons to that. Yeah, So
0: tease that out. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing?
1: I think it's mostly a bad thing, but there are things to be learned from it. Does yeah, well, that make sense? W- sure, yeah, absolutely. Sort of well, like you know, you don't look at you look at France and you'd be like, wow, there's a lot to learn from French cooking. But I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be France sure. in every way, right? right? <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing. So, one thing that's compelling about, as you said, is that when kids are polled, the government in Korea did a big survey of kids, and and they preferred their hagwon instructors over their mm-hmm. teachers, and they said that the reasons why was that their hagwon teachers never gave up on them. They mm. really believed that they mm. could achieve. They kept trying when things didn't work. They, you know, the hogwans really push information. They don't They don't expect parents to get involved and, and then get disappointed when they don't. They they push, they text the parents sort of constantly and they call, the teacher will call the parent once a week. The principal of the hagwon will call once a month or so. So there's really pushing information out to the families and, and creating a sort of partnership there that, that I think our schools could learn from.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, let's talk about, um, let's, go to a, a listener question here. So um, we got a, a call from, um, for, for you, Amanda. Let's go to the phones.
1: I'm Jason from Baton Rouge,
0: Louisiana. I'm currently reading Amanda's fascinating book in which she relates that several countries have quickly and dramatically raised their performance on international tests by increasing teacher program admission requirements. How would increasing admissions requirements for prospective teachers affect education in America?
1: Good question. Yeah, so uh, Finland and other countries, years ago, raised the requirements for teachers. So Finland actually shut down all of its education colleges and moved them into the eight elite universities Mm -hmm. in the country. So now getting just getting into a college that trains teachers is like getting into MIT in the United States. That alone isn't enough, right? Having a high GPA does not a great teacher make. Mm -hmm. But what's really surprising and compelling about that is that it sends a signal to everyone else that you are serious about education to taxpayers, to politicians, and most importantly, to kids. Mm, mm-hmm. The kids I met in Finland knew this about their teachers. Oh, they were not, they yeah. were not unaware of this.
0: Do you think the kids in the United States have any idea what it takes to become a teacher?
1: They probably don't, uh-huh. but you know what they do notice? They do notice when their teacher makes a basic math error on the board, <sighs> which I have seen in classrooms in America. Um, they do notice when when their teachers aren't well-prepared, when some are and Mm -hmm. some aren't, right? And they do notice that their teachers don't get a lot of respect in society or don't get well-paid, right? So these signals, I think, are more powerful than I had realized. Mm. These signals matter a lot. And the exchange students that I followed noticed that quite a bit.
0: Um, And so what do you think we could do um, with... I mean, tell us, unpack that for um, uh, this question from Baton Rouge. Uh, You know, what what are our teacher training... um, uh, standards-like right. for, for, you you write about it somewhat anecdotally with this, you know, this teacher, a couple of teachers in Oklahoma where right. Kim was from. But, you know, so, give, give us a sense of that because I was a little bit surprised by the lack of standards.
1: Yeah. We educate twice as many teachers as we need in mm-hmm. about 1,400 different schools of education of wildly varying quality and selectivity. So in some ways, some of our states look like Finland did in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm we have not made this leap no single state requires its education colleges to have a very high level very high level for admission even though you know this is something that all the top performing countries in the world have in common and even though states do regulate education colleges heavily mm-hmm, i mean they're mm-hmm. they're bound up in all kinds of red tape but they don't do this and the pushback usually is when you propose this that there's a fear that you will end up with a more homogenous teaching force, Mm, that you mm -hmm. will um, unfairly bar people from the teaching profession before they've had a chance to prove themselves, Mm -hmm. which is fair. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In reality, the attempts that have been made suggest that that isn't what happens, that in fact, if you make teaching more selective and more rigorous and more serious, more people want to be part of it eventually.
0: It increases the diversity of exactly. the population, you, right.
1: You know, you look at Teach for America, which uh, started out very homogenous, very white, and has got, worked very hard and has become much more diverse than most education colleges in the country, actually. So, you know, this is something that is possible, particularly if you want to recruit men to teaching, which I think would be incredibly valuable to kids, particularly boys. Mm-hmm. You gotta you gotta give them more respect, more prestige, more autonomy, and more pay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Although I mean with you know, the Teach for America model isn't you know I think, it lacks a certain amount of rigor because they don't have much time for training. They take these kids who are bright kids, eager, idealistic, give them a little bit of training and then throw them in there, which is a little bit, I think, ter- we wouldn't do that with any other profession. We wouldn't do it with nurses. We wouldn't do it with doctors. We wouldn't do right. it with
1: Right. It's sort of an engineers. interesting irony, right? That Teach for America is the only teacher preparation program that has elevated the prestige of teaching in the United States, and yet it, 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 they don't have a lot of time to train their teachers. They do now stick with them. They have coaches that stick with them yeah. through their two years, so they've gotten better at, at trying to do this. but. You know, at that point, the teacher's in the classroom.
0: But what we need is, is you know, a, a basically what Finland does, Finland, Finland doesn't do a Teach for America model. Right. Finland says, we want r- our very best students to go into education, and we put them into an education college where they're not only te- learning about teaching, they're learning about the subject matter that they're going to teach. Right. They're doing a very, you know, they're rigorously studying Finnish language, or they're rigorously studying... Uh, math And then, you know, that's a several, that's a year years long process. And then we you put them out there and the student te- the, the student teaching is different in Finland than yeah, here. Yeah, and
1: that you might have hit on the most important thing, right? Because just like any job, you learn it by doing it, yeah. especially a hard dynamic job like teaching. And so they have a year to do student teaching and they're placed with very effective veteran teachers, which is a huge difference between, you know, in the United States, it's typically a semester. You get whoever, you know, is available, sometimes not so great of a teacher, you're not getting great feedback, that's, you know, that's a huge disservice to teachers because then they end up in the classroom without the tools that they need. And and then we expect them to perform, you know? So uh, I think that there's a lot that could be learned here. It is striking to me how much political capital we have spent in this country on, you know, fighting over tenure and value added data and test scores and all these things, but not this, Mm. you know, not starting at the beginning of a teacher's career.
0: Yeah. we're talking to Amanda Ripley, she's the author of "The Smartest Kids in the World." Um, as we wind down here a little bit, I got uh, some other questions that sort of more for pers- you know personally relevant parents. Let's talk about the role of parents here because I found this. I was reading these sections aloud to my wife. <laughs> all right, so if you're a parent, as I am and as Amanda is. Um, I think this book is worth reading just for that. There's, it's not even a huge portion of the book, but maybe six or seven pages about, like, what's the role of parent involvement. And, um, and you say something that really just, that, that startled me. You say here, in education superpowers, parents were not necessarily more involved in their children's education. They were just differently involved. And indeed, let me put a finer point on it. You, you say that volunteering at your kid's school, which is in some ways a marker of a concerned, conscientious parent in this country volunteering at your kid's school has zero effect on their learning. Talk to us.
1: Actually, has a negative effect <laughs> in some cases, in some cases right, right? which is shocking. But yeah, there was one study of 13 different countries and regions that found that the more parents volunteered in the PTA and extracurricular activities at their kid's school, the worse the kid did in a test of critical thinking and reading on the PISA test by the time they were 15, which is shocking and disturbing. On the other hand, On the other hand, there were some things that worked in every time zone. If parents read to their kids when they were younger almost every day, and then, as the kid got older, talk to their kids about their day. Mm. Talk to them about the news of the day. Mm-hmm. Talk to them about the books they were reading. Mm-hmm. That conversation, that back and forth, is incredibly powerful. And we know that, right? I mean, we had tons and tons of research here in the U.S. to show that. But it turns out all around the world, those things do predict a kid who is not only a better critical thinker in reading by age 15, but actually enjoys reading, which is cool.
0: Uh- I, I, exactly right, so i mean i I, I found that a, quite a quite a revelation especially uh, i mean I guess there's some very American point of view because volunteering at your kid's school is seen as such a noble thing it's like yeah. of course right. you're a good parent who does that, and you sort of expose that it. it really doesn't have much of an effect and, and but what you also say is that parents' involvement in their kids' education matters a lot, but it's what they do at home right. Right. Um, and so among the things, so let's, so let's try to be instructive here for, par- for parents. One of the things that you said is for little kids, reading to, the, reading to your kids, mm-hmm. um, talking to your kids about current events and what's going on in the world right. and just having that conversation. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is tell us about uh, parents who read for pleasure.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because this is so, it's like a breath of fresh air, <laughs> you know, for a parent, right? For a busy parent. It turns out that parents who read on their own for pleasure by themselves actually end up, if you control for everything else, including socioeconomic background, end up with kids who are better critical thinkers by the time they're 15. So, you know, kids, again, kids pick up on signals. They're incredibly sensitive to signals. They know when school is... when when school is like bogus, they pick up on that, it Mm -hmm. chips away at the credibility of school. Mm -hmm. And they know when people say you should read and then they don't do it themselves. Exactly. So for me, it's like maybe instead of the bake sales in the school lobby, maybe we could hand out books for kids, for parents interesting literature for parents magazines right mm-hmm. and then they could have like a sort of lending library for parents as you come and go you're going there anyway you, you grab you know you grab a, a National Geographic and a people magazine you know what's what's not to love about that <laughs> absolutely
0: absolutely so so parents listening out there go pick up Amanda's book read it in the living room skip the bake sale <laughs> skip the Halloween parade skip all that stuff <laughs> you also say there's a difference I thought this was a nice way to put it um, and there is, a, I think, a cultural, national difference here. The difference is between parents who see themselves as coaches and parents who see themselves as cheerleaders. Right. Explain.
1: One of the things we can learn from Finland and Korea is this attitude that part of a parent's job is to help their children learn to fail, mm. to try things on their own, mm-hmm. and to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and try again. Mm-hmm that is the kind of thing that for different reasons you see among Finnish parents and you see among Korean parents and Japanese parents and you do not see as frequently among many American parents you do see American parents acting more like cheerleaders you know there was a great book uh, called parenting without borders that came out a year ago and the and the authors describing how she had raised her kids half in the United States and half in Japan. And when she came back from Japan, she's, <laughs> she's at the mall, and she sees um, you know, this, this father get his five-year-old off the uh, little carousel. And he says to him, great writing. <laughs> you know? And so she, it just really struck her. And she wasn't making fun of it, but she was saying, you know, it just wouldn't occur to you to say that in Japan, that, that you know, you wouldn't need to feel like your kid is so fragile that that he or she needs constant affirmation.
0: Right, right. Now, one of the challenges that, that we face in this country is, um, is, is how much socioeconomic status predicts um, education performance, right. um, particularly on the far ends of the of the curve. Are there any lessons from other countries about that aspect of it? I mean, we have, I mean, it's disgraceful in a country this rich that we have 14 and a half, 15% of the country living in poverty. If yeah. you look at, say, even SAT scores, SAT scores correlate perfectly with family income. Are there lessons from other countries about what we can do to tackle that divide.
1: Definitely. So one of the things that other countries have done is to spend actually less money per student, but spend the money they have more equitably. Mm. This is something, thankfully, that some states are slowly, slowly Mm -hmm. starting to do, but still the United States is at the bottom of the developed world when it comes to the equitable distribution of resources and education. So what's interesting is- Meaning
0: rich kids get more and poor kids get less. Exactly. Uh-huh.
1: As opposed to the opposite, <laughs> right? which is what you see in, in most top performing countries in the world is that poor kids get more and rich yeah. kids get less. Yeah. The challenge here, right, in an individualistic society that is very segregated uh, where they live based on uh, income and race, is that what happens, the federal government, for example, the United States does work to, to make spending more equitable. So if your school drops below a certain percentage of kids who qualify for free lunch, you lose a ton of money because you lose that that Title I federal funding. Mm -hmm. What happens is you see that states and locals actually make up for that. So when the federal government tries to make it more fair, the state will compensate for that. And you still end up with inequitable distribution of resources where it's not always pure money. What it usually is, is the more experienced veteran, more effective teachers want to teach in the better neighborhoods understandably so they go there so they cost like sometimes one and a half or two times what the new teachers who are less effective Uh so it's this weird thing now there are ways you can pay teachers more to work in low-income schools which some districts are trying to do but you know it's not an impossible problem to solve but it requires a mindset of equity that pervades Mm. even the upper income neighborhoods where you know parents are raising $200,000, $300,000 Two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars 300000 to make up for the loss of Title I funding, and they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. But, you know, that's actually perpetuating Absolutely. the inequities.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, it's sort of, you know, in this country, we talk about public schools in this country, but some level, our schools are really not that like public. Like
1: quasi-private, they're, right? They're,
0: yeah. yeah, because, I mean, again, you know, we're sitting here in Northwest D.C. Um, where there are some very good uh, D.C. public schools and some very good D.C. public schools within walking distance of where we sit right now, and yet... The parents are supplementing it with literally sometimes thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, a couple things before we a couple things before we wrap up. Um, um, one I have to get to here, which is um, we're, something that I am somewhat ambivalent about, have been ambivalent about um, as a, as a parent as a parent of an 11 year old boy who's obsessed with baseball sports. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You wrote a I've I an incredibly interesting provocative cover story for the Atlantic. Um, that was the case against high school sports. I'm surprised you were not. I grew up in Ohio. If you had written that in Ohio, <laughs> you'd be run out across the border. Um,
1: I, believe me, I did. I did get some pushback.
0: I'm sure. <laughs> Tell us about sports and what role, if any, they play in education.
1: Okay, so first of all, I played soccer all my life. Okay. I, I love sports. My kid plays soccer. Like, I love it. And especially for boys, but, but also girls. Okay, so we're just, I mean, just, I'm just
0: stipulating, I just s- don't establishing don't that she's not a communist. All like, right, I'm, so here we go. I don't want to. So we have... love, okay, you love sports. <laughs> so tell us, so, so what's, so tell us about okay. sports. What role do they play? All right,
1: here's the striking thing that the kids I followed noticed right away when they came to these other countries is that sports happened. Sports were a big part of kids' lives, not part of school, separate from school just like many things are separate from school, right? They were not part of kids' lives in school. Which, what does that mean? Well, it opens up a huge amount of time, money, and energy for principals, teachers, and kids to focus. Focus in any complex organization is really important, right? We know that. Focus matters. And again, kids pick up on signals. They know if the football team misses class once a week, Because they have to go to an away game and they get a substitute teacher every time their math teacher slash coach leaves. This doesn't happen in other countries. Uh, Principals do mm -hmm. not have to meet. You Mm -hmm. know, American high school principals have told me that the most time they spend meeting with parents is around sports. They have to manage 10 different sports budgets. They have to deal with insurance, with hiring referees, with buses to transport the kids for away games. All these things that are incredible time suck from the very hard job. Of educating kids to to do higher order thinking. I mean, this is this is their job, and yet they've got this whole kind of unholy alliance with sports going on in their schools, and kids pick up on that. And by the way, half of American kids do not play high school sports. So what message this is does the take it away, send this? Is the takeaway? This is the takeaway from
0: your article. For the kids who do play, it might be it's it might great. have some virtue. Yeah, definitely. But what it does, but the kids who don't play, which is far more than we think, it's money, effort, attention. Uh, psychic energy social capital devo- like, social yeah. capital devoted to this other kind of enterprise but don't ki- here you go here's the here's the here's the what any sports person would say well don't kids learn things in sports yeah. about leadership and being a good teammate and all yeah. that
1: yeah it's it's there's something heartbreaking about that because <laughs> i yes they do and why aren't they learning that in math mm. do you know how much time they spend in math class mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay but you know we send kids back two weeks early in the summer to do preseason, right, for yeah. sports. And they work so hard. Yeah. And, I mean, I remember almost passing out. Two days, like, yeah. Like it was grueling. It's humid. It's hot. It's like, but you got to do it because you got to be ready. You got to start that school year ready. Imagine if we did that for, for math mm-hmm. because we know there's a summer reading loss, right? Sure, I'm like, oh, sure. my God, it's a cliche at this point. Yeah. So do we bring back two weeks early for kids to just read and read and talk about what they're reading? I mean, that's absurd. That would be, that would be roundly mocked by everyone, right? So there is a kind of, um, there is a kind of weird parallel universe where we, we expect kids to learn resilience, perseverance, and self-control in sports, mm. <laughs> which you then, to apply that to your real life, takes a, a, some actual like leap of logic. Whereas they could be learning that in school because you have not seen a, a kid who is resilient until you've seen a Korean kid in math class. I mean, you can learn those skills in school.
0: Well, that leads us, so let's, let's, let's end on this. You say that in the book that the education superpowers whom you um, profile, um, they, they actually have a common belief that, that what, what unites a Finland and a Korea, to some extent a, um, a Poland, is that um, they agree on the purpose of school. And, and, and what, what, what is that?
1: They agree that school is for mastering complex academic material, for learning how to think, Mm -hmm. learning how to learn, for failing and picking yourself up again and trying harder. So they didn't get that way overnight. They got that way because they faced an economic existential crisis where their country was about to become irrelevant, and they realized they had to double down on their people. And I'm hopeful that we are approaching that same revelation.
0: I hope so, too. We've been talking to Amanda Ripley. She's the author of... The Smartest Kids in the World, a fabulous new book. Go pick it up. Um, Amanda, pleasure talking with you. Um, That's it for Office Hours. Thanks for being with us. If you've missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But you can check out our previous episodes on iTunes or on danpink.com. Thanks for listening.